Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together as the people of God. We thank you that we have the freedom in law to do so and that we're in a country that is at peace and allows us to do that. And Lord, we, we don't take that for granted. We look at our brothers and sisters around the world and so many of them find that so much more of a struggle. And Lord, we recognise that this um, lockdown due to the disease that's been ravaging the world gives us a little taste of what some of our brothers and sisters around the world have had for some time. But Lord, we thank you that we're here today, that you are here with us by your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to spend some time looking at a word together. And we pray that you would apply it to our hearts, Lord. Help us to uh, learn from you, but also, Lord, change us so that we do something about what we hear today, whether it be in prayer or in other practical action. We do pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to make us more like Jesus as we hear your word. Amen. So um, I'm going to look at Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to skip down to 26, which continues, continues the narrative of Philip, rather than looking at the, the section in the middle, which is a, another story. So uh, it's up on the screen as well, but I will read it. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. We're going down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself 
or about someone else. And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I wonder if you were asked the question, who is the great evangelist? Or who is the greatest evangelist? Who you'd pick? I guess if you were looking at history of the 20th century, you might come up with names like Billy Graham, or maybe Louis Palau, or there are others out there who, during this century, have met with great success in preaching the gospel to large crowds. Looking at Acts, you might look and say, well, Philip was doing pretty good here, but don't forget Paul. And don't forget Peter, 3,000 people at once. But the answer is none of those. The actual answer is God himself, and especially through the work of his spirit. And when you look at the Acts of the Apostles, as it's often called, some people have said it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. When you look in this particular chapter, you see God's hand more clearly than you do at other times. But all the time... The reason why the gospel spreads is because the word applied by the Spirit of God is changing people's lives. We started this passage with something that you might think, well, I don't know what that was. Saul approved of his execution. Who is he talking about? Well, in the previous part of Acts, the apostles appointed seven men to serve the church. They actually appointed them because there had been a dispute about how the church, which had many things in common and was, was looking after widows and so forth, um, how they were distributing this. And the Hellenic Jews had said, look, you're missing out our people. This isn't fair. And in a very gracious way, the, the apostles said, well, we're not going to do this ourselves. We need to focus on the word and prayer but we're going to give you the criteria to appoint people who will do this. And there were three things. They were of good reputation. You don't want somebody with a bad reputation administering things, do you? They were filled with the Spirit, and they were wise. And wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord and from reading his word. But these people that were appointed, the first person on the list was a man called Stephen. And what happens with Stephen is, besides clearly doing what he's supposed to do with the church, he also gets himself into a situation where he's telling people about Jesus. And people challenge him, and they falsely accuse him because he's got a good reputation, so there's not much else they can do. And at the end of chapter 7, he has, by telling it like it is to the, um, the Jews who are accusing him at the time, got himself in the position where they have risen against him and stoned him. And the man holding the coats is Saul of Tarsus. 
And you might think that it's a terrible thing, that the church, which was doing so well, which had grown, which was in a position where so many people were turning to uh, this Jesus and this way, suddenly was under persecution and they had to flee. But I would say to you that maybe you haven't looked at the beginning of the book of Acts where Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, the Holy Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses. And up until this point, except for the few people that probably had come into Jerusalem and gone back out again, and those that were there on Pentecost from probably much further afield, the gospel hadn't really gone very far. It was still mainly in Jerusalem. The church had got very strong in Jerusalem, and obviously it was the right place for it to start. But what happens in verse 4? They've been dispersed, except for the apostles, and it says those who were scattered, which means not the apostles, but normal Christians, if you like, went about preaching the word. Where did they go? Well, they were scattered into Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said would happen. The gospel went there. Perhaps it wasn't the most comfortable way for them to find out that they needed to go there, but very often God is at work through the circumstances that you think are just trouble. No, 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 that's not true. What others mean for trouble, God works for good. And then we focus in, instead of on lots of people, on one man, Philip. And I want to look at Philip, and I want to look at the eunuch as well, and I want to look at how God has used this situation. So let's start with Philip. Philip is most likely to be a Jew with a Greek background which would mean that he could read Greek for a start and would also mean that he would be perhaps slightly more open to talk to somebody who was non-Jewish. And Philip is a man who was appointed by the church um, in a, what you might call a deacon role because he was of good reputation, filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom. We can see here that he's very much in step with the Spirit because he listens to God. What else do we know about Philip? Well, he has a ministry which turns out that he, when he proclaims the word in this new place in Samaria, the signs and wonders that follow both Jesus and the apostles, they follow him because they're following the gospel and God is making the point that this is real. But the most important thing is that he preaches Christ. And at the end of verse 8, you see that because Christ is accepted, there is much joy. And he's in a great place. In fact, it's so good, the apostles turn up and they, they do some things to make sure that it's all as it should be. But then you get this. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he does what he's told. So Philip is a man who is a Christian, of good reputation, living a Christian life that is focused on God. He proclaims the word, yes, 
and he's obedient to what God says. He keeps in step with what God wants him to do. What about the Ethiopian eunuch? What was he? Well, the Ethiopian eunuch, first of all, was from Ethiopia, and he was a servant of the queen, um, Candace, and he was a high official. Now, what happened with uh, quite a few cultures back then was the high officials who were male were basically neutered, like you do your cat, to prevent them from reproducing. And that meant that according to Jewish law, he would not be allowed among the assembly. So not only is he a foreigner from somewhere a long way away from Jerusalem, but he's also disqualified from being amongst God's people. He couldn't come into even the Gentile court of the temple because of his particular situation. But he's a man who would be highly educated if he's doing the treasury. He would, he's a man who has a lot of authority, and yet he takes the time to go to Jerusalem because he's obviously come across the Jewish religion. Now, we know that he's got a copy of the Jewish translation of the Scriptures. I never pronounce this right, but I'm going to call it the Septuagint. And if you tell me afterwards I pronounced it wrong, well, that's fine. But it's spelt Septuagint. And what it was, was 300 years before the birth of Christ, but after the Alexandrian sort of conquering of the known world, a translation of all of the Old Testament into Greek was undertaken. And you often see, when, when you look at the Old Testament, where they're looking to see whether they've got it exactly right, because they're very careful Bible translators to make sure they've got the best representation of the Scriptures. They say, Septuagint says this. And when you read the passage there, it doesn't seem to be exactly the same in phraseology to the Hebrew passage that we're going to look at in a minute. But that's because he was reading it in the Greek. So if you think about, have you ever had a manual for something that it was a little bit difficult to read, and a little bit clunky, because it's been taken from the Japanese to the English via the German. That you tend to get... When you look at it, it's completely accurate, but it's just clunky. And I think if you look at the, 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 the comparison, you'll see that. But he clearly come across the Jewish religion, he'd clearly come across the Old Testament, and he clearly wanted to worship God. So he was what they often call a, a, a God-seeker, a God-fearing man. And he'd been to Jerusalem, and he was on his way back, and he's still interested in reading the Scriptures. And what God does is he brings together these two people, and it's made very clear that their meeting is not an accident. You see, it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south. Why couldn't the angel have just popped up and told the guy directly? Why, why involve Philip? Why not just, you know, send the angel? Sorted. And when you think about it, that would be really convenient, wouldn't it? Because in, in various parts of the world, including parts of the Middle East, but not just there, it is almost impossible for a Christian to walk in and talk to um, 
a member of that community for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that they might get killed or the person talking to them might even be killed. It's as extreme as that in some places. But God does speak to some of those people through dreams or visions because we know through feedback from some of our missionary friends that this happens. But he doesn't tell them the gospel. He sends them to other people. There's been a phenomenon in Middle Eastern um, relief workers, Christian relief workers out there, where people have come to them and said, look, I had this dream, and I was told to come and find the people with the book. Because I want to know more about God, and yet I've got to come and find these people with this book. Can you explain this to me? Well, of course I can. This is the book. Let me help you. That genuinely has been happening in recent years. Now, you might say to me, yeah, but this is the other way around. It is. Go and look at Cornelius later, and you can see that Cornelius gets, sent, gets to send to Peter. So God does work in people to get them to the place where they can hear the gospel. But what Jesus said is, you guys will be my witnesses. So God wants his people involved. And what happens with Philip is he arrives and he tells the gospel to the Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian, by the end, he again, he leaves with great joy because he's received the gospel. So we need to unpack this a little bit. But basically, who's the great evangelist? Who's the one who sent Philip to be the right man in the right place with the right message? Who's the one who timed it so that the Ethiopian was in the right place with the right part of the Bible open? And who told Philip to approach the chariot? The Holy Spirit did that. So God is at work through Philip. Philip is not the great evangelist. Philip is serving God. Okay, so Philip has got to this place. He has spotted the Ethiopian who is reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit says to Philip, go over and join the chariot. Well, what happens when these two men meet? Well, Philip does what is always a very good idea if you're actually talking to people. He asks a question. And the question he asks is, do you understand what you're reading? It's a great question. Do you know what this means? And he gets a great answer. How can I? Unless someone explains it. Someone guides me through it. So the... The Ethiopian invites Philip onto the chariot, and as they're riding along, I'm sure it's a much more luxury ride now compared to having to run down the road, he finds out he's been reading Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he's led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. And now the eunuch asks a question, and he says, look, who's he talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself, Isaiah, or is he talking about someone else? And what Philip does, starting from there, is to explain the gospel. Now, I'm just going to outline what Philip would have said, and I'm going to get it from two places. One place is 
Isaiah 53. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flip it open. But the other place is the earlier parts of Acts where you see the messages that are given by others. Because Philip would have been saying the same things as Peter said at Pentecost, as um, Stephen had said in chapter 7 and so forth. It's the same message based on the same scriptures. And whilst the emphasis would be slightly different depending on who you're talking to, the basic information would always have been the same. And it's very clear from um, the book of Acts that when you look at Paul as well, he follows the same basic, simple message. So turn with me to Isaiah 53. We'll have a little look. And then we'll come back and finish from there. Okay, so when you look at it, where is the section that he is actually reading from? Well, it's not from the very beginning of the chapter. It's from verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit on his, in his mouth. So you can see the sort of passage. It's definitely a tragic passage, if you just read it out of context. It's tragic anyway, in one sense. Who is this person who was oppressed, who was afflicted, who was like a lamb or a sheep? who was silent, who was not defended, and who made his grave with the wicked. Well, Philip would have rolled the scroll back a little bit and said, let's just look at the context here. And, and I'm going to not read the whole of Isaiah 53, although you could start from 52.13. I'm just going to come in from a little bit earlier. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is about Jesus. It's about the Jesus who was tried before Pilate and before the Jewish Sanhedrin, not in that order actually, who was lashed, who was put with a crown of thorns, who was put up on a cross between two thieves and who died apparently alone. And it says here that we esteemed him not. He was despised, he was afflicted. But here's the good news. There was a reason why he did it. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He was taking our punishment, Philip would have explained. 
Why would he do that? Well, for one reason, we needed punishing. Or we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, mankind, sons of Adam, if you like, has turned away from God, has rejected him, has tried to do our own thing and look around at the results. But the punishment, the healing, are dealt with at the cross. So he was oppressed, he was afflicted. He would have told him about what happened with Jesus. How he did come as a man, attested by God, with those signs and wonders, similar to the sort of thing that had been happening for Philip just a few days before. He would have explained how he was still betrayed and handed over to the Romans and that he was crucified. And that he, in fact, was not just crucified between two thieves, but also buried amongst the wicked and the rich, even though he himself had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But that, of course, was not the end of the story because it had been the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief and his soul makes an offering for sin. The result? He sees his offspring and he prolongs his days. Well, actually, Jesus rose from the dead I'm sure Philip would have mentioned the fact that after three days he rose again. And when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, he meant you'll be witnesses to me, the risen, living God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many and he'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus became one of us. Like a sheep for his shearers is silent. We like sheep have gone astray. He was numbered with the transgressors and yet he makes intercession for the transgressors. Explaining that in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philip would have probably discovered that the Ethiopian got it quite quickly because he'd been reading these scriptures for some time. And it would have dawned on the Ethiopian that if this is the case, if getting right with God if being amongst God's people, if, if, if turning back to God is about faith in Jesus, then the fact that he's a eunuch doesn't matter. The fact that he's not a Jew doesn't matter. He too can turn to God. And so you get this passage where he says this, what prevents me from being baptised? Well, what did Peter say in Acts chapter 3. What did Peter say at Pentecost? He said, repent and be baptised, every one of you. So, Philip would have said, repent and be baptised. And I'm pretty sure that 
he was convinced that the Ethiopian had genuinely put his faith in the Lord Jesus. But I'm going to bring in one more passage of Scripture because I think it's important that you understand that baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Baptism is the outward sign of something that's already happened in your heart. And this is only going to take a moment and then we'll conclude. Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this is verse 9, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's what's just happened with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's realized that God really has raised Jesus from the dead and that he is Lord. And he's repented and turned to him for the forgiveness that's available because of the price Jesus paid. And if you cast your mind back to John's Gospel, you may remember Thomas, the one that wasn't there, missed the meeting, and Jesus turned up. So then he said to them, I won't believe this unless I can put my hands in the side and touch the wounds. And I can't believe this. But when Jesus appeared a week later to Thomas, among the others, he didn't say, Lord, I believe. He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, you believe because you see. So what happened in Thomas's mind and heart was he believed, but then he also acknowledged Jesus as his Lord. And that's what repentance does. You say, I'm not going to be turning to my own way anymore. I'm going back to God. I'm going back to make Jesus Lord of my heart. You have to turn back to him and away from your own ways in order to repent. You have to leave behind your sin. But you have to, if you're going to do that, believe that he is the risen Lord. Why would you put your faith in somebody who's dead and gone? doesn't make sense, does it? But look at the rest of the scripture. It's quite interesting because what it says is, the heart, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the, his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But verse 14 really links back to what we've just been talking about. This is what it says. How are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching. What did the Ethiopian eunuch say? How can I understand this unless somebody guides me? And then he could ask his questions. How did he get the point where he was in that conversation? Philip was sent. So you might be thinking, well, that's great, Martin. If the Lord sends an angel to me, I'll certainly do what he says. But in the meantime, I don't have to do anything, do I? Well, I'm sorry, but you see, although we focused in on Philip, and although we focused in on the fact that Philip, obeying God, was sent to a particular place and a particular time, and, and helpfully for us, it's been unpacked as to what happened with that Ethiopian who then went on and there's been a church in Ethiopia since the beginning of Christian history. There's always been some kind of Christian witness over there. What you find 
is that perhaps we're not Philip, but perhaps we're more like the people in verse 4. What was that? They too went out preaching the word. The situation that God puts you in is the place where God wants you to be the witness. Now, sometimes we get a bit comfortable and he kicks us somewhere else. But you are there because you are the witness in that place. That doesn't mean you go out and you bash people with your Bible every day. Peter makes it clear that you do that with respect. You are ready to give an answer. But what Jesus says in Acts 1 is that you will be my witnesses. And it's obvious by now that he's not just talking about the apostles. Because all the people that left Jerusalem who were not apostles were preaching God's word. And we need to be in the position where we too can help others to know him. Two things. First one, you need to be somebody who is living a life that means you keep in step with God's spirit. And the second thing is you need to be living according to his word and you need to actually understand what you believe in order that when somebody asks you, you can say very simply, look, let me start from here or here. And that will depend upon who they are and what questions they are asking. So what happened at the end? The spirit directed or took Philip somewhere else and he carried on preaching the word and the Ethiopian eunuch who never saw him again went his way back to Ethiopia where I'm sure he helped the early church there because if you've got somebody in a position of influence and authority they're often a shield to those who are just gossiping the gospel in other places below them who's the great evangelist? God is the great evangelist. How does he work? Through little people like you and me, helping people understand that his word always points to Jesus. We'll stop there and pray, and then we're going to sing, well, sorry, we're going to let somebody else sing for us, um, a song that might have been a song sung by the Ethiopian if it had been written by them, but of course Wesley wrote it years later. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your words to us this morning. We pray that as we look at it, we'll recognize your hand in, in the story there. But also, Lord, we'll be looking for you to uh, guide us to continue to be willing to speak out for you and to help others to know you. Because how can they call upon the one of whom they have not heard? And Lord, we pray that you will put into our hearts people that we need to be alongside and ready to share with. And Lord, that you'd also help us to be those that live according to your word in the power of your spirit as we follow our risen Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together. We pray for our brothers and sisters who couldn't be with us today, that they too will be encouraged by your word and your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that um, in this time of lockdown, and partial recovery and then fear of this or that, that we would be the people who recognise that despite the circumstances we're in, we are still your blessed people, blessed with so much that we have to share with others. Help us, Lord, to be willing to continue to live our lives
filled with joy at our knowledge of you and our knowledge of the certainty of, of where you are taking us.